You are listening to the Life Community Church Sermon Podcast. Life Community is a church for the city, making much about the name of Christ. This podcast is available through all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. If you enjoy and are challenged by our teaching, we invite you to subscribe to the channel on whatever platform you choose as we seek to anchor ourselves to the unchanging truth of God's Word together. Thanks for listening. All right, like I said, we're still in Hebrews, been there for a while. We're getting close to the end. So Hebrews chapter 12, if you don't have a Bible, uh, nobody will point, you know, highlight you a point. I might. Hey, you. No, I wouldn't do that. But we have Bibles in the back on the little rack. You can grab one. You can use it for the service. You can keep it, write your name in it. That's available for you or people in our community that need to have God's Word with them. And so we don't want anybody to go without for for lack of uh, the opportunity to have a Bible. But if you have your Bible today, whether it's your Bible app or your Bible or whatever, open that up. We're going to read just the first two verses of Hebrews chapter 12. It seems like a short passage, but there is so much in here, and I'm just going to skim the surface today, just skimming the surface. So it reads like this. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Wow. Does anybody else think like, whoa, there's, that's, that's heady stuff right off the bat. I mean, you're going to open a chapter like that, like, boy, you want to dig in there. So we're going to just break this down a little bit, little concepts, little sections at a time, uh, because there's so much to unpack here, so much to unpack. First, We've just come out of Hebrew, we're in Hebrews 11, or we're in Hebrews 12, so we've just come out of Hebrews 11, ah, good, somebody's, somebody's listening. Um, and in that, uh, the, the author is lifting up and discussing these heroes, the legends of the early, of the early uh, Israelites, right? The, the heroes of the faith, they would say, those that first encountered God and made commitments and so forth. And... Um, Actually, we still find it kind of amazing that that happened, but these first century Jews, the people that actually this physical letter, this scroll was handed to, they would have been really excited about it because they really closely identified with these ancient uh, fathers of the church, the forefathers, the people that laid the groundwork. They really, really identified closely, leaned on them. In some ways, they hoped in them. Now, there's a thing about heroes and legends. Um, I mean, don't you think so? We, 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 I don't know if you're a comic book person or there's other people you consider heroes in our, in our world, but we kind of expire. We're like, man, I wish I could be like them, right? I wish I could be like Captain America or whatever. You know, he's always good. He's the, and and we, we wish we could change the world like they did. So you might find some great leader somewhere in time that you thought was amazing, and you said, man... He changed. I wish I could be like that. Wish I could. And, and that's all good, except the problem is um, heroes are generally not as good as you think, particularly the heroes that we're talking about in the ancient text. These Old Testament heroes. See, the problem is they were kind of broken, you know? They weren't so, they weren't great. They were a lot more like, I would say, Batman 
than, I'm sorry if you're not a comic book person, I'll explain it in a second. They're way more like Batman than they are Captain America. See, Batman, at the end of the day, Batman usually finished up and accomplished something good. But he was not, he didn't have any problems with skirting around, you know, the means to his end. He could break some rules and didn't bother him too much. He has a dark character, struggled a lot with temptations. I mean, he was just, he wasn't a nice guy. But at the end of the day, he usually came around and it finished well. So that's Batman. Then you got, and I've already mentioned, Captain America. Ooh. Now, he was like the perfect all-American Boy Scout, right? Never makes a mistake, super strong, never gives in, always searching for what he can do that's good and right and proper, sacrificing himself, doesn't care. His integrity, if it costs me something to have integrity, I don't care. He, he's just a good guy. But that's really not our heroes we're talking about back in the Old Testament. These were not the cream of the crop. They were kind of, eh, meh, right? But God was able to take these crooked, I know this is a saying, people, God takes crooked sticks to make straight lines, and he was able to do that. So in the end, they did accomplish what God had for them to accomplish by his strength. But they wandered off the path an awful lot. An awful lot. So just remember, when you think about these old heroes of the faith, they were flawed. I mean, let's face it. Jesus, or David was an uh, adulterer and a murderer. Jacob was a liar and a cheat. Abraham was disobedient because he didn't move when he was supposed to. I mean, you just go look at this. We always read the good parts of the stories, but these guys were broken, okay? Don't hang your hat on these people's lives. So that's the first thing. So secondly, because so, it says this cloud of witnesses that we're surrounded by. So that's who the people he's talking about. Now, um, what's a witness? Merriam-Webster says this about what a witness is. It's an attestation of a fact or event, could be like a testimony. It's someone that gives evidence before a judicial tri uh, tribunal, so anything in the court where you tell your part of the story, right, you're a witness. Someone asks to be present at a transaction so they can testify later that it took place, like we do at weddings, right? Everybody comes to a wedding, they get up there and say their vows in front of everybody, and we're all witnesses, right? If somebody ever said, well, they never got married, yeah, I was there. They're married, right? So we witness. These last couple I really want to hang on because I think they're closer to the area we're pressing into today. One who has personal knowledge of something. So there's a lot of people that they could witness something by someone else. So, you know, Joe's friend's cousin's third sister told me about this other guy's experience, right? So I could witness, I could be a witness, but what I'm really witnessing is somebody told me something, because someone told them, and someone told them. We're not talking about that. We're talking about somebody who has firsthand experience. I was there when it went down, and I can be a witness. So that's someone with personal knowledge. Also, someone serving as evidence or proof so, or something. So like if, if you're at home and the, you look down on the floor and the remote control is broken in pieces, um, you could easily say without gathering other evidence, uh, the remote is broken. It speaks for itself. There's something there that proves it's broken. It's called all these pieces that used to be together to form a remote. All right? And lastly, it's a public affirmation by word or example. Word or example. It doesn't, have to be, it doesn't have to be that you're saying something. It could be just the way they see you live. That then is proof of something or, or, or it affirms something about you. So the writer here is noting that these people from Israel's past serve as witnesses. He says, we have a, such a cloud of witnesses. Well, they're witnesses to something, right? What is that something? And last week we talked about these. 
uh, noting that they exampled faith to us. Faith in what? Something promised. He go, the author goes out of his way to, to point out a couple of things about these witnesses. He says, uh, these heroes didn't receive the promise in their time. Okay? So there was a promise given, and they knew, they trusted God for the promise, but they physically died before that promise came to fruition. But they died knowing and trusting that it was coming because God said so. And secondly, uh, these heroes are all dead. It says in chapter 11, he says they're buried, they're, they're buried around the, all around Israel. They're not, we don't even know where Moses is buried. So, so they're dead and buried, which means they cannot be your hope for God's promise. You can't rest your hope in the fact that Abraham was a follower of God to save you today. Can't happen because he's, you know, dead. I thought it was humorous because <clears throat> I said it that way. All right. Now, I want you to note this. If you go back and read those stories, those patriarchs that we're talking about from chapter 11, they didn't hope in a former patriarch either. So Abraham comes along, right? And then after Abraham, you have uh, Joseph comes along. Well, Joseph knew about Abraham, but he didn't rest his hope in Abraham. And then, you know, some generations later, Moses comes up, and Moses knows about Joseph and Abraham, but he's not resting his hope in Joseph and Abraham. You know, and many, many generations later, there's David, right? He's one of the, you know, Moses and David are the two biggies. So David, he obviously knew about Joshua and Moses and Joseph and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all those guys. But he didn't rest his hope in those former believers, those former followers. Because they were also resting in a promise. They were trusting God for what they could not see. They were trusting in the promise made from Yahweh, God, creator. But each of these cases that I've mentioned had a witness from a previous generation and an example, if you will. Now, what's different now is we, now we come back to when this was written to that first century group of Jews, believers. See, the problem they had is they did, in fact, rest their hope in these ancestors. You know, well, I'm a son of Abraham. You know, people said that to Jesus. He would say, well, that's good for you. But Abraham's dead. He can't help you. And he pushed back against this narrative. But they were all confused because they rested all their hopes in Abraham, Moses. Moses to them equaled the law. They had forgotten the source that lifted up those men. And they forgot what those men were having faith in. None of those men had faith in themselves. You see... They served as examples of faith, but not where our faith is to be placed. They were looking at them as where our faith should be placed. See, they were misidentifying them as something more than they were. And all those Old Testament patriarchs, even though they didn't know about Jesus specifically, they knew and they believed, they died knowing that God had a future Savior that would, that would right all the wrongs, that would restore God's creation, and that would save us from our sin and save them from... They thought, I'm dying, 
but God will still save me by something he's promised for the future. That's pretty mind-boggling that they were able to have that hope, but then after all these generations, we come to the first century Jews, and they lost sight of that. They're hoping in these old guys, essentially. That was their heroes. It was very hard for them to think of Jesus as their hero. He didn't fit the mold of those old men they heard about their whole life. Okay, so, so that's where we're at. Given these witnesses, because it says, because we're surrounded by this cloud of witnesses, how do we respond? What's it say we were... So, uh, and, and how do you think the first century Jews responded? No, we've kind of talked about that already. But we are to respond by embracing the same kind of faith that those Old Testament heroes of the faith had. We don't, we don't embrace them, but we stand and say they're an example of faith. We live trusting in God's promise for us. Although it's now already come to pass in Jesus, we still have to trust because Jesus isn't physically here anymore. We have to have the same kind of trust. Um, those Old Testament characters were an example, not the example. Does that make sense? So how do we get there? So, okay, so, so what are we supposed to do then? What's the, what's the how-to of it all? First, we recognize and step away from the things in our life that draw us away or just make us too busy to be close to God, things that interfere with our relationship with God. It doesn't have to be a sinful thing per se, but if you're too busy doing something else and it distracts you from your primary focus on Jesus, which is what the passage says, then you need to set that aside according to the passage. That and all these sinful things that so easily ensnare or entangle. Actually, I like some of the translations. This, the one we read today says entangles us. Uh, King James says so easily ensnares us. It's like stepping into it in the woods because you're not paying attention and it traps you. It's almost like no, you've got to like, chew your leg off to get away. Um, the New Living Translation says sin that so easily trips us up. But I want you to notice there's a common theme through all of this. It's easy. It's easy. It's easy to sin. Right? Sin's just right there waiting, man. It's like a trap. And this is nothing new. This has been going on for, for, from the very beginning. Let's go way back to Genesis chapter 4. Right? This is, this is Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel, right? Brothers. One's a, one grows in the field. One is a hunter and raises livestock. So they both bring an offering to God. Cain brings the first of his wheat or whatever he grew, and, and Abel brings fine cuts. I mean, it says it's good meat. He brings that to the Lord. God decides key importance. God decides to accept Abel's offering and, and, or give it regard and not regard Cain's offering. Now, you might say, well, that's not fair. Well, the Bible doesn't tell us why. I've heard teacher teaching that, oh, well, there must be some sin in his life, but that's just not in Scripture. We, we, we don't know that. I think it might be this, because Cain was upset. He was, he was, he was honked off. He's like, hey, man, 
I brought my good stuff. And God comes to him. I, th- I wonder if this was a test. Because God comes to him immediately. And he doesn't condemn him. He doesn't say, you gave a bad offering. He says this. He says, you can choose. He said, right now, you can choose, man. You can. He said, if you, if, you do, if you do well, if you do the right thing, you'll, won't you be accepted? You'll be accepted. If you just do what's right, you'll be accepted. He didn't say your offering was terrible. He didn't say um, anything else. He said that. If, if you just do right, you'll be accepted. It's okay. It's okay that he might have been upset, but now he needs to do right. And he follows that up with this interesting warning. He says, because sin is crouching right at your door, and you can easily get entangled in it or ensnared. It's the same word, this ensnaring. This has been around since the beginning, man. It's easy to just step right in it because you don't stop and guard yourself. So this is nothing new. And then he says after that, stands there and he says, but you must rule over it. That's a tall task, man. That sounds like a tall task. So, so is that just it? We just dig our heels in? I mean, we, we get greater willpower and through our own strength, we just say, I'm just not going to do it. No, because you can't, because you're weak. I'm weak. We can't do it. And then the writer explains that immediately by saying, and this is the how-to, he said, fixing your eyes on Jesus. Did you catch that? He gives us what we must do, this avoiding the temptations of the world, avoiding the busyness of the life, avoiding the sins that are so easily to get into by fixing our eyes on Jesus. See, if you're thinking about that, you're not thinking about this other stuff. And he immediately says that. And then he likens it to like an athletic event, this running a race. Now, this is a little, I'm a little sidebar here. This is the reason, this kind of passage is the reason that I personally fall on the side of the fence where I kind of think that Paul probably wrote Hebrews. Now, that's just me. Don't let that be divisive. I could be completely wrong. That's what I kind of have decided. I've been convinced of that just by, he, he uses this same metaphor of running a race in other passages. So it seems very consistent to me. And that's one of the reasons. Anyway, I don't want to, to throw you off, but that's kind of me. Uh, so he uses this thing. And he says, here's an example. First uh, Corinthians, it's just chapter 9, verse 24 through 27. I want you to listen to some of the words in here. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. Do you get that? Set aside encumbrances and the sin that ensnares. Oh, here he says, exercise self-control. And if I'm going to mash the two verses up, exercise self-control by focusing on Jesus. Then it says, they do it to receive a perishable wreath. So people will run hard after something that's not even lasting. He said, but we're doing it for an imperishable he says, so I don't run aimlessly. I don't box as one beating in the air. He's kind of mixing his metaphors. He was talking about running, now he's boxing. He says, but I discipline my body. I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself would be disqualified. He doesn't want to be thrown out of the race. So here we are in a race of sorts. 
And we are, or we should be, striving toward the finish line. We just said that in Corinthians, right? Only one gets the prize. But here's the, here's the twist on that now. The one who secures the prize is not you. The one who's won the prize isn't you. It's not me. You're like, what? No. I know it sounds like it initially, but think about what's happening here. You're not going to affect the winning or losing of this race. It's been won. Remember the promise. The one all those heroes were trusting God for way back when? Well, by the time they're reading this, it has now come. And Jesus has already finished the race. He has secured the victory. He's run that race. He's already done it. And all he asks of you is, well, you're supposed to run the race too. We're offered a chance to partake in the prize that he has already won. You catch that? We get to share in the victory that we didn't have to win because he did. That's what these both passages are really kind of talking about. But if you don't run in the race, you don't get a prize. If you're not participating, you don't get any reward. And remember this, you're not running to win the race. Because that's already been done. Do you see that? Yet you're still required to run. We don't run to win the prize. We're called to run, not to win. Because it's been won. We run to share in the victory of Jesus Christ. He's standing there at the finish line. He's holding the trophy up. And he's calling, just run to me. Just run to me. I got it. That's what he's saying. And that means, that's, that's so beautiful because that means we're not competing with each other. I don't have to run faster than you or slower than you. I don't have to worry about where you're at in this running thing. Because where you finish doesn't matter. You finish. You just don't stop. So everybody's race is going to look different. So like uh, my race going to look different than Rick back there. His, my race and his race are going to look different. Rick's race, gonna, as awkward as it might look, uh, um, see, that was funny. Um, his race is, it really was, uh, is going to look different than like Steve's race, right? And Steve's race is going to look completely different than Billy Graham's race. And we don't need to be comparing like that. I don't run Steve's race. Steve runs Steve's race. We run our own race, but who sets the course? What does the passage say? The race set before us. Not the race we choose. We don't get to choose the race. And as we're running our race, we are ruling over life's encumbrances. We're running the course that he has set before us. Now, here's a cool thing. Jesus is, Jesus is all things in this race. Right? We've already said, he's, so he's at the end. He's the victor. He's standing there with his trophy, and he's calling out to you. Run here. This is it. I've already got it. Just come take a piece of it. We're going to take this big trophy picture together at the end. So he's, he's, he's the winner. He's also uh, our coach. He's there at the start 
when we're, at the, we're at the starting blocks and we launch into this race for the first time, Jesus is there. He's launching you. At the same time, he's waiting for you. But it's deeper than that. He's your trainer. In the middle of the race, have you guys seen like uh, professional races around these tracks, right? Yes? Anyone awake? Yes? Okay. The, you'll see these guys running along sometimes on the inside of the track, talking to the runners. They might just run a short, short. Jesus is there. He's calling out your split times. He's telling you how you need to adjust. Hey, pick up the pace. Oh, no, slow back. Slow down, slow down. You're going to run out of gas. He's the coach. He's the trainer. He's already won it. He's a participant. He's already won, but he's currently still participating. It blows the mind. But he's all of it. It's so cool. This is a great metaphor. So we should evaluate ourselves. Am I, am I behind the mark? It, when he tells you my split time, my little behind, my little off, is he telling me, oh, pick up the pace, man, pick up the pace. You've you got to get moving. You're, you're, you're behind. Or because I'm tired, I go, hey, look, I'm going to slow down a little here. I think I'll, I'll save some in the tank. He's like, no, 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 pick it up, pick it up. I, I know how you'll win. And then, or, or maybe you're a guy that's going to sprint ahead. You're like, hey, I think i got a plan. I know how this will work. I, I'll just sprint ahead a little bit. You get ahead of where Jesus says you should be. He knows what, how, how you're going to finish, and he knows it doesn't matter. It matters that you do finish. So he's, he's calling that out to you. Do this, do that. Bo both of those other options are foolish because they lead to a loss of strength. They lead to you being encumbered by distractions. They lead to you being easily ensnared by sin. The very things we don't want to do. Here's another point. You can't affect the winning time. The clock's already been clicked. Jesus won. You have no effect on the outcome of the race. Whether you, even if you don't participate, he still won. Whether you run fast or not, he's still going to be in first place. Everyone else is second place or low or farther. But he doesn't, but he doesn't care. He said, you just have to finish. Our hope can't be in how well we run our race from our perspective. Our hope has to be in the one who has fulfilled God's promise, and that drives us toward this finish line. It drives us. Can't rest in former servants. I'm kind of picking on the Israelites because they were stuck in this, well, I'm, I'm a, I follow Adam or Abraham or, I, I, you know, David was my... No, we do the same thing now, right? We got your uh, Andy Stanley people. We got your, uh, your Matt Chandler people. We got your John Piper people. We got your people, um, Priscilla Shirer, right? Uh, Tim Mackey, whoever you listen to, whatever your favorite TV evangelist is, whatever your favorite podcast guy is, it's easy to slowly let that be your hope. Oh, I just rest on every word he says. Don't do that because no matter who that person is, and, and for, for my grandma, it was R.C. Sproul and uh, who was Andy Stanley's dad? Uh, Charles Stanley, right? The, the big names of, the, of, that, of that generation. But let me tell you something about all those people. They're people just like me and you. They're just like us. Which means at some point, they're going to fail you. With 100% certainty, at some point, they will fail you. Guaranteed. So we can't rest in that because Jesus also looked forward 
when he was on the cross, he's on the cross, according to this passage, and he's looking forward to something, the promise that God had for him, that there was joy waiting for him at the completion of his race, the joy of seeing all these people that he would, he would rip sin out of their lives and allow them now to be part of the race, to be part of God's kingdom. He did it. He looked forward. So we should be looking forward and knowing that God will complete it for us as, to, as well. There's only one hero. There's only one hero that we should be looking to, and that's Jesus Christ, God's son. The passage then finishes with, he's the author and finisher of our faith. See, I'm unable and you're unable to complete ourselves or to finish ourselves. I can't, I can't start my faith and I can't finish my faith, but Jesus can. The only way our faith becomes complete is if Jesus does it because we get out of the way and we let him be that coach trainer. We let him rule and guide us. So I've got a question for you. You've been, have you been hoping, on, hoping in heroes here on earth or in the past, past people that were great fathers in the, in the faith from the last few generations? I mean, have you listened to that podcast or that TV person maybe a little too closely and identified too closely? You ever found yourself trusting too tightly in how these other men or women guide you? Yeah, me too. Mm-hmm. But praise God, he has strengthened me and he has reaffixed my focus on Jesus. And he can do it for anyone who submits and says, ah, I don't need that. I just need you, Jesus. Now, I'm not saying we'd never listen to TV preachers, don't read books by, by uh, other believers, or we don't listen to podcasts. Those are all great. Those, there are great men and women who have received great wisdom from God, but they are men and women. They are not, they are an example, not the example. Don't so closely identify that it pulls you away from Jesus first. Can't place our trust in them. They'll fail you. But the promised one that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joseph, Joshua, David, all of them, they all looked forward to a promise, and it's Jesus. He is truth. He is life. He is our faith, and he'll never fail. And the cool thing is he offers entry into the race to everyone. Everybody gets a chance to enter the race. But there is an entry fee. It's going to cost everything you are. All of it. You see, Christ has promised. He'll take your, uh, your dark past. He'll take the ugliness. He'll take... He'll take the distractions that have kept you from him. He'll take the sin that has so easily ensnared you. He'll take all that and just remove it from you. And he'll take it on himself, which is what he already did when he finished the race at the cross. All your bad choices, all of it. But you have to confess him as Lord. You have to submit yourself to his authority and allow him, allow him to wash all these things from you. If you stand there all stubborn, I don't want to be in the race, you won't be in the race, which means you won't get a reward. Not my words, right out of Scripture. So if whatever you think it should cost, whatever you think it costs 
whatever. Or whatever you think it should cost to make that slate clean, to what, what, the, what the cost would be to, for all the horrible things you can think about you've done in your life or, or the things even, even after you've come to Christ, you know you've stepped out a little bit and you go, man, how can, how, that, the payment's not big enough because the sin is so great, whatever. I can promise you, I assure you, when he finished the race, he finished the race. It's been won. He has paid it. See, the Bible calls his payment which is his death, the Bible calls that his atonement for our sin. Atonement means to, to, um, to cover over or to uh, make right. Okay? So Jesus atones, and then God can forgive. Forgiveness comes because Jesus atoned for what we did. Jesus paid our price. And if just like that, you're in the race. Just like that. You don't have to be ready or get ready. You simply submit to his authority, tell him you want him to be Lord, recognize who he is, and you're in. Poof. Now, there's still some stuff to do then. Because <laughs> now you're running a race. There's running to be done. And quite frankly, your race could be like a big uphill climb for the next season. We don't know. Maybe you're on flat ground, but there's a lot of curves, and maybe there's people running around trying to sabotage your race, people throwing roadblocks in front of you. Who knows? See, Jesus never promised that this race is going to be a nice, gentle downhill slope all the way straight line. He never said that. Matter of fact, what he said is you're going to face storms. There's going to be trials. You're going to be running into the wind. That's what he promised. That's what he told his disciples. So it's okay to feel tired. It's okay to feel tired in the race. As a matter of fact, expect to feel tired in the race. But we lean on each other. When you're in the race and as you see somebody falling back, just take them by the arm. We can run this together. We're supposed to lean on each other as we focus on Jesus. I, I, can't, I can't rescue someone that's lagging in the race. I can't do it. But if I focus on Jesus, when we lock arms, then, and I'll, and I'll say to them, make sure and focus on Jesus, then we can do it together. That's the body. That's what we're supposed, that's, that's what the family of the church is supposed to be doing. And all the while calling out to people that are standing on the side saying, hey, man, get in the race. Get in the race. Look who's, look who's won it. Get in the race. You want to be in the race. That's our goal. But remember, Jesus is the author and finisher. It's his job to complete it. We just run. That's all we have to do. Now, as a church family, today this is our, I think I got him. Uh, this is our fifth Sunday, fifth Sunday? I think fifth Sunday of the month. And on our fifth Sunday, we do, we always share communion together. So we're going to do that. Did you guys get the little packet thing coming in? Make sure. Okay. Um, so communion is, we call it communion. It, it represents, or it's, it was memorialized initially of Jesus with his disciples the night before he was arrested and went through the trials and then later hung on the cross. And he was meeting with his disciples and they were sharing a Passover meal together, which was a big deal. Passover is all about the blood. Passover is all about obeying God. All these symbols. And Jesus says to them, he says, um, we're going to share this meal together and I want you to recognize 
what these, what these things, we're going to drink and eat, but I'm going to tell you something. What we're eating and drinking is just going to stand for something else. I want you to think about this. When you drink from the cup, it's going to be, it's like my blood. It's going to be shed for you because I'm going to have my blood shed for you. So, so then when you, I pass the bread, you take a piece of the bread, that's, that's my body. It's broken for you. And he says, but I want you to partake in it. See, we're supposed to take Jesus' suffering, take Jesus' uh, parts, if you will, into ourselves. We suffer with Jesus. We, if we suffer in his death, then we can arise in his new life. And that's what he was getting at. So we're going to do that together. Um, everybody have your little cups out. I'm going to give a few minutes here. Uh, the Bible talks about uh, getting your heart kind of set right before, before we perform this. This is not magical. This doesn't save you. This doesn't keep you saved. This is something we do to remember. Because Jesus said at the end of that, as often as you do this, because they were going to do it at least annually because the Passover, do it and remember me. Remember me when you do it. He's changing the narrative. Don't just remember the Passover of days of old. Remember now the new covenant in my blood and my flesh. And that's what he was doing. So it, then uh, the New Testament teaches that we should, we should be right with each other. If you're carrying a big deal, a big hang-up with a brother or sister, it's okay to not take part today. and say, man, i got to go get that cleaned up with somebody first. And that's okay. It doesn't make you bad. It actually makes you obedient. I'm not saying every little thing that's wrong in your life, but if there's something that God brings to your mind, take some time. Think about it. Pray to God. Thank Him for this wonderful ceremony that we get to celebrate in His victory, which only came about because of His suffering and death. So um, I'll just give you a couple minutes. We'll think about that. And then when everybody's kind of done praying and looking up, I'll get up and I'll just lead us through that, through that ceremony.